Well, we have certainly come a long way in the gospel according to Mark. We started way back in September, and I hope you're coming to a fuller understanding of who Jesus is, and through that understanding, uh, that that means that Jesus and his cross are looming larger and more comprehensively in all of your lives. We've been right in the middle of a pretty long section of dialogue and theological repartee for over a chapter now. Before this, though, Jesus had been on the way. He had been on the road, on the way for several chapters as he made his way up to Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. Of course, we know that the celebration of the first Passover isn't the only thing that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. He is on the way to the fulfillment of Passover. The true and better Passover is right around the corner. Jesus entered Jerusalem Jerusalem triumphantly as her king in the beginning of chapter 11. He entered the temple, looked around, and saw that it was already late, and he left. He leaves the temple and Jerusalem and comes back. He comes back, and he shuts down the temple. He doesn't just cleanse it. He doesn't kick people out and clean it up a bit and rearranging things where they ought to go. He shuts it down. He ends it. And now, since the end of chapter 11, he's been standing around in the outer courts of the temple like Bruce Lee. Seriously, like one after one comes trying to attack him, trying to trap him. It's like the movies too, like one after one comes. If like all 50 bad guys came and attacked Bruce Lee, I don't even know if Bruce Lee could handle it, but Jesus could, even if they did, they are trying to get him to say something that will get him in trouble either with the people or with Rome. So one after one, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the Sadducees, one after one, he's just fighting them off, right? And then, as we saw last week, he then begins to go on the offensive. He asks his own question, not only to show that they are the ones who actually don't understand the scriptures, but also to shed light on the nature of Messiah and as his true identity. In fact, it's standing here near the temple that Jesus gets closest to revealing himself as the Christ, revealing his true identity. But now, channeling some of the righteous anger that we saw when he flipped over tables, when he drove people out of the temple, he has finally had enough with these religious charlatans who parade themselves around in power. We're likely now at Tuesday of Holy Week, So three nights from now, on Friday night, Jesus will be brought back to the temple as both high priest and as the blameless sacrificial lamb. But today, he is in full prophet mode. Jesus is looking around at the rulers, the shepherds of God's people, and he's had enough. Perhaps even reflecting on all the attacks that he's just fended off, Jesus moves from not just exposing that the leaders don't in fact understand and recognize him as Messiah, but they are actually unfit to lead altogether. He has already loudly condemned the temple, and now he will loudly condemn Israel's leadership. So we'll first see a culminating condemnation. This has been coming for a while, and now he's finally going to condemn But then immediately following, Jesus will show that he's not just about denunciation and condemnation. He will then point us to a contrasting commendation. So first, a culminating condemnation. He's just asked the scribes, he's just asked the leaders a question about David and about the Messiah from Psalm 110. 
And the people, in verse 37, they, they heard him gladly. And it's to them now that he points his attention. He's been talking and discussing with individuals and with classes of people, Pharisees and scribes. But now he turns to the people. And let's read these first three verses again. Of the scribes who he's just been talking with, he says to the people, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He's talking about these guys that are like standing right here. (laughs) But he's talking to the people about the guys that are right here. Now, we saw some of the Old Testament background last week for this denunciation, namely Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. We we read in Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So in the spirit of Israel's prophets, Jesus comes denouncing her wicked leaders. We saw this kind of prophetic speech coming in Jesus' parable of the tenants at the beginning of this chapter, where the early servant messengers in the parable are Israel's earlier prophets, whom the tenants beat and treat, treat shamefully. And in that parable, Jesus can see where his own prophetic preaching will take him. When in the parable, the son of the master comes after the messengers, and he's treated not only the same, beaten and treated shamefully, but then is ultimately killed. This was at the beginning of this chapter. Jesus knows where, if he goes into the same prophetic mode that Israel's prophets have always gone in, it will end in his own death. Nevertheless, he boldly exposes and condemns the hypocrisy of the scribes. He tells the people to beware them or to watch out for them because of their empty piety and their wicked self-promotion. These scribes, these teachers, like to walk around with long robes. Now, we don't know what these robes were or what they looked like, but point being that they wore these things to distinguish themselves from the rabble, right? They know the law better than you, and they want you to know it. One commentator says that Jesus' authority came from his teaching. The scribes came from their clothing. We've already seen Mark distinguish Jesus in such a way in chapter 1, where we read in 122, And they, the people, were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. It's not the long robes in and of themselves that were the problem. It's the attention-grabbing motive behind the clothing that Jesus is addressing. These motives show themselves in many other ways as well. They like greetings in the marketplaces, these kinds of greetings and attention that come as a result of wearing the right clothes, which will garner such a response. These guys love receiving respect. They love receiving deference and adulation and honor. They love the sense of others respecting their piety, their devotion to God. 
as they sit in the best seats in the synagogue, likely in front with their back to the altar, facing the people, so that the people can be very sure to see their extremely serious and pious faces. They love places of honor at feasts. Like, they like to be the most important person in the room, and they like everyone there to know it. As opposed to what Jesus has prescribed for his disciples when they were arguing about greatness in places and seats of honor, where he told them if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So if all this hasn't gotten our attention, hasn't gotten their attention, perhaps verse 40 will. They devour widows' houses. Now, they aren't termites, like going around and like eating widows' homes, right? But they, like termites, are just as thorough in their consumption. Now, widows in these days were often the weakest and most susceptible to abuse. They were unable to work on their own, and they would have entirely depended on the generosity of others. Throughout the, prophet, the prophets, we see God charge his people to care for widows and the fatherless. James would later say in his epistle that true and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans, those who are unable to care for themselves. Think about Naomi and Ruth, both widows themselves. While Naomi says that she is essentially without hope, Ruth is still young enough to remarry. But kind of as for me, I'm too old, I'm a widow, I'm, I don't have much hope left in this life. What little widows did have would be merely for their daily survival, a not-so-subtle foreshadowing of our next scene. So if all that widows have is for their basic means of survival, and they are depending upon the community around them, especially the leaders of the community around them, to care for them, then what the scribes are doing is all the more deplorable. And they would have done this, the scribes, they would have devoured widows' houses, their, their livelihoods in, in several ways. They might have accepted payment for legal advice, which would have been forbidden. As legal authorities, they, would, they could have mismanaged or cheated widows in their roles as guardians of their husband's estates. Could have taken money for widows in order to offer lengthy prayers on their behalf in the temple. More on that in a moment. Or just ruthlessly and mercilessly demanding immediate payments of debts upon their husband's death. The scribes care only for themselves. Take, take, taking. Taking the food and water money of widows so that they can presumably buy nicer clothes, have fancier parties, make the trappings of the temple more extravagant. They are the Ezekiel 34 shepherds, feeding themselves rather than feeding the sheep, taking the wool for their fancy clothes. And if it wasn't clear before in just talking about clothes and seats in the synagogues that Jesus was in full prophet mode, it certainly is now when he is talking about widows. Like God threw Isaiah before him, Jesus will not stomach this kind of exploitation of the weak. Isaiah Chapter 10, God says through Isaiah, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, writing laws, legal people. 
to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Jesus is prophetically denouncing these men. And after exposing their lack of love for others, namely the weakest, Jesus now will expose their lack of love for God. The day before, when Jesus had condemned the temple on Monday, he said that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. Well, it's not necessarily that prayers weren't being offered in the temple. They undoubtedly were. It's just that most of them were inauthentic and self-promoting ones. End of 1240, he describes the, the scribes as, for pretense, they make long prayers. They are undoubtedly using showy and flowery language so that people are extremely impressed by their theological acumen. There is no love for God in their prayers, only love for self. And again, if we know Isaiah, we know what God thinks of such prayers. Isaiah 1, 15, God says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. There's a context in which God does not hear the prayers of those praying. And Jesus is now saying that that context is now. Jesus is piling a weight of evidence against the scribes. He has publicly read the charges against them. And then he hands down the verdict. They will receive the greater condemnation. The jury finds the accused guilty on all counts. The prophetic word of God, which is finally coming to them after the past several chapters, has now fully condemned the scribes. And not just condemnation, but great or greater condemnation than just those who are outside of the knowledge of God or outside of the right worship of God. Those who know God's word the best and have been charged with leading God's people will be held to higher standards in corresponding judgment. Again, James comes to mind where he writes, James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God considers the leaders and shepherds of his people with great scrutiny. And not just their actions, but their motives as well. The scribes' prayers might have actually been theologically precise. They might have actually come, unintentionally on their part, but as a great encouragement to those hearing them. But their motive is pretense. Their motive is self-promotion. And they are thusly condemned. Now our immediate tendency after we read this is just to breathe a great sigh of relief, right? Whew! Glad those scribes are gone, right? They were terrible. I'm glad... God's leaders of his people aren't like that anymore. Well, it doesn't take too many clicks through the TV stations on a Sunday morning uh, to see Jesus' description of the scribes superimposed on our TV screens. Many are just as predatory and hungry for the nominal dollars of the poor, just as self-promoting, and not Christ-promoting, just as self-loving and not God-loving. And unfortunately, not only on TV, but in 
local churches as well. This is one reason why we hold to a plurality of elders at Desert Springs. Mutual accountability so that the potential sin and pride of one man won't sink the whole thing. Listen, you have no reason to have anything but confidence in your elders at Desert Springs. I'm not one of them, but you have confidence in them. Uh, That said, please pray for them. They are not without sin on their own part. They need God's help. On Friday morning, seemingly just as I was writing this part of this sermon, I read this on Twitter. If you hold your pastor to a higher standard, as you should, then you should hold yourself to a higher standard of prayer for them. I think that's good and right. Perhaps you didn't breathe a sigh of relief now that the scribes are gone because you have a realistic understanding of many present-day leaders of churches, but perhaps you breathed a sigh of relief to say, Woo-hoo, I'm glad I'm not a so-called religious leader. I'm glad that I'm not held to that high of a standard on myself. Well, while leaders might be held to a higher standard, these three short verses have much to say to all of us. Anyone here this morning who dresses in such a way to garner a response, to garner attention or compliments? Ever catch yourself standing in front of the closet thinking about which combination might get the most looks or second glances? I know I have. Well, not a perfect one-to-one analogy from our clothes to the long robes of the scribes. Uh, Perhaps not seeking religious attention, but attention nonetheless. I think our heart is the same. The need for attention, the promotion of the self. Anyone here this morning ever been asked to pray and your immediate response is, what should I say that people will think much of me? Marcy and I went back to Texas one year from Christmas, for Christmas when we were in seminary in Louisville. And I had just finished, like two weeks prior, finished writing a paper uh, on Matthew 2, comparing the scribes and the magi. So when we got to this big Christmas celebration with my extended family, my uncle who was hosting asked me to pray for our, before dinner, uh, you know, because I'm the serious Christian, the seminary student, right? Uh, and I prayed this. It was really good. I prayed this really eloquent. It was, it was you have to trust me, it was really good uh, prayer about drawing near to Jesus as the Magi with exceeding joy and great worship. Not just merely knowing about the Messiah, but remaining far from him as the scribes who knew about him but didn't worship him. Uh, I was quite pleased with myself and the congratulations that I received after saying amen as I patted myself on the back. Surely many of the nominal Christians in my family who know about Jesus, now because of this great eloquent prayer, they would now be drawn to greater and deeper worship of the Christ around Christmas time, right? All the while completely oblivious to the dripping irony that I had become just like the scribes that I was praying that my family members would not become. Making a pretense of long prayers. Where do you seek to promote yourself? Perhaps even in religious activities such as prayer, such as church attendance, that you are here every Sunday in every Lord's Supper service and every community group meeting, and you all should know about it. 
um, maybe knowledge of the Bible. You're just waiting for the right, right chance at a community group to offer that little gold nugget of theological clarity so that people might think, wow, whoa, wow, he knows his Bible. That is great. This is dangerous stuff. This is condemning stuff. Why? Because you have replaced God, the Lord your God, the Lord who is one. You've replaced him, the one worthy of worship, and whom you are, the one whom you are to love with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. You've replaced him with the worship of the self, a giant golden image that you have fashioned in the likeness of you, a golden image that is in your vision at all times that you are seeking other people to offer their worship to rather than God, that you are certainly offering your own worship to. The the scribes stood condemned before Jesus. They are not only not obeying the two greatest commandments of passion for God and compassion for people, but they are brazenly breaking them. They stood condemned before God, but you and I stand right alongside them. Perhaps some of the scribes who are hearing Jesus' condemnation are feeling the weight of their consciences bearing down on them. Maybe the scribe who earlier said that the two greatest commandments are indeed loving God and loving neighbor. Maybe he's realizing that he hasn't been doing these things. That he has been about promoting the self and not true love of God. That he has been devouring widows' houses. He's beginning to agree with Jesus about his great sin. Likely, though, the scribes who are in earshot of this kind of prophetic condemnation go not into a place of humble contrition, but of an angry place of self-justification and self-defense. In 14.1, we read, The chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him and kill him. Likely they were getting angry anyway, but after a very public condemnation of them, just as Jesus had said, I've had enough of you, these scribes are saying, we've had enough of him. We gotta get rid of him. He's not only embarrassing us publicly, but he's shaming us and exposing us. What can we do to get rid of him? In 15.1, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And as Christ Jesus hung dying on the cross in 1531, surely with Jesus' public condemnation of them still ringing in their heads, they mock him as he hangs on the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. How's that condemnation of us going now, Jesus? The Christ, mocking, revulsion, self-justification, self-worship, self-love, all the way to the point of crucifying the God whom they claim to love. And yet, until we place ourselves right alongside the scribes, understanding that it was our sin too which held him there, we will not understand the magnitude and the glories of what was accomplished on the cross. 
you stand condemned before God because of your empty piety, because of your wicked self-promotion. And yet, Jesus willingly goes to the cross to receive and deflect that just condemnation. If you agree with God about your sin, if you trust in his righteous life and his substitutionary death on your behalf, standing under him to, that he might deflect and absorb the condemnation that is due to you. If you've never trusted in this gospel to save you from your sin, to make you right before God, do not be like the scribes. Don't go into a place of angry self-justification, self-defense as you hear the charges read against you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We'd love to talk to you about this Jesus, about your just condemnation, about what Jesus has come to do to save sinners from that condemnation. We'd love to talk about all of this with you after this service. There will be people up front with name tags who would love to answer any questions you might have, to pray with you, to pray for you. Do not harden your hearts. Trust in Christ. Well, the end of Mark 12 is not all denunciation. Immediately following this culminating condemnation, Jesus offers a contrasting commendation. It's been a while here, so let's go back and read verses 41 through 44 again. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, we don't know how long all this Bruce Lee action of chapters 11 12 has just taken, whether it was one after another and everything that was spoken, Mark recorded for us here, so it just took as long as it would take for us to read it, 10 or 15 minutes, or if what happened took place over the course of many hours, or if Mark is just thematically placing similar events in a chapter for us here, that these events took place in several different parts of Jesus' ministry, and he put them there for us here. Regardless, Jesus needs a break. He's tired. He has just, he has been on the defense for a long time. He's gone on the offense, and then he has publicly not only condemned the temple, but all of Israel's leadership. That's a, that's a day, right? Uh, so he goes and sits down opposite the treasury to do some people watching. Now, where he would have been is called the Court of Women. It's inside the temple walls, so Gentiles couldn't come in these walls, but it's still the outer courts. It's still outside. It's outside of the actual temple proper building, right? It's still one of the outer courts. The Court of Women doesn't mean that there were only women milling about, but that women couldn't go any further in. So the Court of Women is where women, too, were allowed. And we know also that this is Passover week, which means that this place is hopping. The population of Jerusalem quadrupled in this week, from 50,000 to 200,000. And one main reason people would make this annual pilgrimage was to contribute offerings. These offerings went toward the temple, towards its 
upkeep and its improvements. They went to the purchase of animals used in regular burnt offerings on behalf of the people. And around the perimeter of these courts would have been 13 shofar chests. A shofar is a Hebrew trumpet. And these boxes, these offering boxes, boxes were shaped and fashioned to look like a shofar, a trumpet. The word in the ESV that we have here in verse 41 for put, the people were putting money, uh, is actually and literally throwing money. So the people would likely walk by and just throw their money into these huge metal trumpets. The rich and poor came from all over the region to make these contributions. And it's not too hard to imagine the rich stopping and needing a couple of good dumps of their bags, of their money, into these trumpets, making lots of noise and drawing lots of attention. It's like you see people sometimes take bags, perhaps you've done this, to the grocery store in one of those big coin machines, right? And it's kind of awkward, right? If, especially if you have a, little ba- a pretty good-sized bag, it takes a few minutes. <laughs> you know, like people are like walking by. and oh, Well, while this draw, drew attention in the grocery store, uh, this would also, much more than that, draw attention because it's a show. This would take a long time and echoing off of metal trumpets, Sounds echoing off the walls. Whoa, check out that contribution. That guy, he is extremely pious. Perhaps this is even what the Ethiopian eunuch who was returning from Jerusalem in Acts 8 had been doing. Luke lets us know that he was in charge of the Ethiopian queen's treasure. And perhaps this was the nature of the eunuch's mission to Jerusalem. And that would have taken a long time. The treasures of Ethiopia dumped into the trumpets Stands there for probably 15 minutes as his servants unload and dump while he's just like checking Twitter. I don't know. It's taking a while and people are, wow, look at that. Ooh. Well, this is what Jesus sits down to watch. And end of verse 41, many rich people put in large sums. But observing that does nothing for Jesus. He couldn't care one bit about the size of the contribution being dumped into the trumpets. He's just watching nonchalantly, yawning as the rich make their contributions and the sounds echo off the walls. But then a poor widow comes by. And I think it's assumed that widows are poor. So for Mark to say a poor widow is a bit redundant, but he's doing that to emphasize she must be poor. And she puts in what the ESV translates as two small copper coins. A literal translation of the name of this coin means fine or peeled. It's like a tiny little peeled piece of metal. You might even be able to bend it and fold it if you wanted to. It's so thin. Many of the older translations, maybe you remember this word from your youth, use the word mite, M-I-T-E, the widow's mite might be your subtitle, which just means minuscule. Her coins are about the equivalent of a dollar today. With the clanging and bugling trumpet boxes regularly going off on all sides of the court, no one would have noticed this poor widow. And no one would have noticed or heard the tiny little clink, clink of her two coins as she drops them and walks by. No one, except for Jesus. 
Now Jesus is doing exactly what God has always done. People watching. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. It says if Jesus is sitting in the courts and his eyes are running to and fro amongst the whole court looking for just one whose heart is blameless before him. Throughout the centuries, the church has used the Latin phrase quorum Deo, which means before the face of God or in his presence or in his vision to emphasize that all of our lives, not just an hour on Sunday morning, are lived before the eyes of God. God and Jesus now in the temple courts is watching. Watching not just actions, but watching motives to see whose heart is blameless toward him. Hannah In her song in 1 Samuel 2, she writes, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, Jesus knows, and by him actions are weighed. This is what Jesus is doing, weighing actions of those making contributions. Not determining weight by physical heaviness and the size of the contribution, but by actual love and worship. And after seeing this widow, Jesus explains what he's found to be true of her heart. He says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In comparison to the scribes, who do not make a move without considering how it will be noticed by others, this this widow lives without anyone noticing. They all live for recognition. She lives for the kingdom of God. And did you notice that Jesus doesn't even publicly recognize her? I kind of always thought he did in this story. As I've just kind of, this is a story you just kind of know. He's been like so publicly and loudly teaching and proclaiming things, uh, certainly over the last chapter and a half. I kind of imagine that Jesus was like, kind of lounging around. He sees this widow, and when he sees her, he like pops up, and it becomes like like the one millionth shopper thing. He like hits a button, the sirens go off, confetti's falling, James and John go and like pick her up and put her on their shoulders and like parade her around, and Jesus is like, behold, check her out. You guys all give for recognition of the self, but not her. She's great. Be more like her, everybody. It wasn't until I read this several times that I noticed in the beginning of verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, and then he tells them about her. It's like she walks in, drops her coins in, and Jesus kind of perks up and just maybe just, hey, he's like, guys, just look at that. Everybody that we've been watching has been giving out of their abundance. They don't really care. Look at her, though. Look at her. She is putting in everything she has. For all she knew, no one noticed her come in. She put her money in and left, and no one noticed her come or go out. And for all we know, no one was with her that night when she went without dinner because she put her food money in for that day. I feel like if I were very, very, very poor and put in everything I had and had to go without dinner that night, it might just be okay if uh, I got brought up on stage 
right? <laughs> hey, everybody, Nathan is super poor, but he put in everything he had. He's not going to eat tonight. And then everybody, good job, Nathan. Way to go, buddy. That, I might be okay with that. But while she is commended privately to the disciples and publicly to us and undoubtedly in heaven, she has no recognition that day. Which, by the way, this does great damage. This text does great damage to the prosperity, wealth, and health gospel that's preached so prevalently today. Which preaches immediately, immediate blessing and immediate financial windfall if you'll just make this contribution to, to God, right? She was not rewarded on that day. She was not even recognized on that day. And for all we know, she was never rewarded in this life. Although she was or is in heaven, undoubtedly. The widow comes as a stark contrast against the scribes who were condemned in the paragraph before, but also a stark contrast amongst the rich who surround her. And whatever they had left over, they gave to the Lord. But a heart of worship was not behind it. Perhaps only a heart of self-promotion, of look at me. Jesus is here showing us what loving God with all of you looks like. She put in everything she had. Everything. All of her. And not just one. Have you thought about that? As minuscule as these little coins are, she had two of them. She could have kept one for a piece of bread that night, but she put them both in. Now, I don't think this is primarily a passage about money. Uh, Mark has arranged these two paragraphs here to give us contrasting examples of self-love versus God-love. And yet, I think a few words here about money are necessary. Jesus talks about money a lot. 15% of all of his recorded words in the gospel accounts are about money. This is more than everything that he teaches about heaven and hell combined. Money. Why? Because I think... Jesus shows us that there's a direct connection on the one hand of our understanding and worship of God and on the other of our understanding and worship of possessions and money. We've already seen this played out in Mark. The rich young ruler was unable to follow Jesus because of his great love of his things. Here's the reality. Is that whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you have heard of God or not heard of God, everything that you own actually belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, David writes in Psalm 24, meaning everything in the earth is God's. This includes your house, your car, your cars, your paycheck, your very life. Anything that we do possess is because of God's great graciousness. And this is why the idea of stewardship is often helpful for us as we consider our money. Your paycheck does not actually belong to you. You are its steward. You are your paycheck's third-party money manager. You are managing God's money that he has given to you for a while. God has given you the money that you have so that you might use it to spread his glory broader and deeper. Which is actually a freeing thing, isn't it? Understanding that God doesn't need our money, 
because of all of it is his anyway, means that whether we're rich or whether we're poor, our giving is about quality and not quantity. About worship and not about amounts. Do you realize that God does not need desert springs to plant churches in North Africa? And for North Africans to hear about Christ and to put their faith in him? He doesn't need us. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He can do whatever he'd like. And he will. But the fact that he is allowing us our little church here in Albuquerque, to be a part of what God might be doing amongst the nations in North Africa is incredible. So we give generously because why? The money wasn't ours to begin with in the first place. It's when we, with white knuckles, claw our fingers into our money and our stuff that we show ourselves to, again, not to be loving God, but be loving things other than God with all of our heart and soul, and mind, and strength. A few months ago, a video went semi-viral on the internet. Maybe you saw it. A guy walks around in a pizzeria, approaching customers who have a full pizza on their table. He walks up, and he's like, hey, hey, can I get a slice? And you can imagine what the response would be, right? These people look up at him, like, incredulously, like, no, are you crazy? (laughs) It's my pizza. No, sorry. And, uh, then, next scene, some guys, some different guys go out and find this homeless man sitting on the sidewalk outside the pizzeria, and they give him a full pizza. A few minutes later, later the same guy who was inside the pizzeria comes, and he sits down by the man, and he says, hey, can I get a slice? And the guy's like, yeah, sure. And they ate the pizza together. Now, I know that we can't see motives the way that Jesus can But I think it's likely that the customers inside think of their pizza as theirs. They bought it. It's mine. So, of course not. Are you crazy? You can't have one of my pieces. You crazy? This is mine. Whereas the guy outside realizes whatever he has was just given to him graciously anyway. So, of course, it's no big deal for him to give one too. Which of these ways do you think about your money? As Ryan mentioned in his August sermon about money and giving from 2 Corinthians, we have so much to celebrate and be thankful for God, to God, uh, in our great little church here. We are routinely above budget. We have planted a local church We have sent fully funded, which is really pretty amazing, one family to North Africa and a second one on Tuesday. That's amazing. We should thank God for that. We should thank you for your generous hearts. But as Ryan asked then, are all these budget surpluses and amazing church planting endeavors because of you? Or are they in spite of you? If how we think about money and possessions is such an inextricable link to our spiritual lives, perhaps we need to think not less about money, but more about it. And more about money in the light. More about money within community. Ryan also mentioned that we have accountability in our lives for nearly anything you can think of. Lust, 
Bible reading, church attendance, we, we talk about these things amongst ourselves all the time and ask for help, ask for prayer, ask for check-ins and accountability with each other. Well, perhaps we should pursue accountability in our lives in the area that Jesus warns us just might keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Here's a suggestion. Get someone in your life who you love and trust, maybe someone in your community group. Maybe if you're married, grabbing another couple in your community group or another couple that you just know and are close with and open your books together. Show each other your budgets and expenditures For many of us, that's the scariest thing imaginable, to have a meeting like that. Because in reality, for many of us, opening our books to someone else might reveal some pretty scary stuff in the way we think about money and what we spend it on. But sin loves the darkness. Getting your spending in the light and thinking and asking of yourself and asking of others, am I spending too frivolously? Am am I buying things that indicate that I am not acting well as God's money manager? Am I giving faithfully to the church? Some of us might need accountability in that. Am I generous enough? Look at at how how I spent last month. Do Do you think that I'm being generous enough here? Some of us are blind to those kinds of things. We need help. We need a fresh set of eyes to look. Am I disciplined in saving money for others? Seriously, many churches budget for benevolence. When things in the body come up uh, that need financial care, the church is prepared. You won't be able to fix every financial need, just like the church can't. Uh, But perhaps it would do us good to budget a benevolence line monthly, $5 a month. 15, 20, 50, $100 a month. Only you know what is good enough. But I know many of you, maybe last month, you saw the news on, about the catastrophe of the earthquake in Nepal. Man, I would love to be able to give money to that. I just don't have any. It's really tight. Well, it's the last six months you had been saving $5 a month, $100 a month. It'd be no problem to write a check to relief. Or when you, one of your friends, something goes wrong with their house or their health, You can help because you've been prepared. Is your money your pizza? It's mine. You can't expect me to be generous with it because it's mine. Or is your stuff, is your money something that God has graciously given to you so that you can be generous with it? I'll say this though, getting back to our text here. Rather than only giving out of our excess, perhaps we should order our our finances so that giving to the church and giving to others actually hurts a little bit. So that we actually have to, like the widow, feel a little loss somewhere else in our lives. So that we can give ourselves reason to believe that we're actually loving God and putting our faith in Him rather than merely loving stuff and the things that he's given us. In his excellent little book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn says, when God provides more money, we often think, this is a blessing. Well, yes, but it would be just as scriptural to think, this is a test. Often, I think, God gives us an excess of money. We've had a great year, huge bonus, 
awesome. God has clearly said, this is the year to get the boat, which maybe it be, it might be. Talk about these things in community. It's not bad things. It's not a terrible thing to buy things, right? But it could be that that annual bonus might be a way that God is saying, will you love me more than stuff? Or will you worship and trust in the money rather than me? There's a reason why it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and we are the richest people to live in the history of humanity. The rich young ruler would drop his jaw if he saw our paychecks and our houses. Even the smallest home probably represented here in Albuquerque would have been a mansion in these days. This should sober us and cause us to reflect and think deeply and often about money. Jesus told the scribe that he was not far from the kingdom. A few weeks ago we saw this. Not far. Close, but not in. The poor widow put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, of course, she didn't perfectly live out the two greatest commandments. She was still a sinner. Only of Jesus can it be said that he really put in everything he had. But this little story shows us that she put her proverbial money where her mouth was. Her understanding of her money revealed her heart. And this little story should come as a sharp rebuke to many of us who need to think more like the widow with our finances, to realize that we are loving and trusting money more than God. But it should also also come as an encouragement to many of us here also who wish that they had more, who just wish that they could get that five or $10,000 raise in the next couple years. So if they had that, then man, I'd just be able to give more to SNAP. I'd be able to contribute more to local ministries and support more missionaries. If, I, if God would just give me more, I would, be, I would love to be generous with it. This story comes as an encouragement to us in that as well. She is not commended for the amount, but for the heart. If this has got you thinking about money in a way that maybe you've not thought about before and you'd like to consider and think about money more, I can't commend to you Ryan's August 2 Corinthians sermon any more highly. It's just titled, Relieving Suffering with the Grace of Giving. You can find that on the web or on iTunes or on the DSC app. It's great. Think more about these things. And we should, often and regularly. You might be thinking, two money sermons in the last 12 months? Come on, DSC. But, well, first of all, Jesus talks about it a lot. Paul talks about it a lot. I think we need to think about it a lot. Now, one final observation here, and as we look ahead to chapter 13, is that while Jesus does commend the widow, have you ever thought about where her two coins were going? She contributed her two little peelings, her two coins, to a corrupt temple system which Jesus had already condemned. The temple is a place where widows are openly robbed and devoured. One commentator asks, now that she's given all that she has, what will happen to her? Who in the temple hierarchy will help her? What will happen to all the money? Will some of it be used to bribe Judas? She throws away her living for the sake of the temple which is yet another reason why next week we'll see Jesus say, 
This thing is done. Shut down. God's people were in desperate need of a better temple. The place where a sinful people and, holy, and a holy God could have full and rich communion. Only the true and better temple will not be a place where the weak can be robbed. But the true and better temple is a person where the weak can find rest. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus himself becomes the temple, the place where God and his people meet. And in the new covenant, which Jesus will inaugurate in just a few short days from this, he will form a new community of people around him, centered around himself, rather than a building and rituals. Are you a part of this people? Is your life centered around him? Or is it centered around yourself? The endless and never satisfying pursuit of what people think about you. Is your death grip on more and more stuff? Do you love things more than him? If so, Jesus stands ready to loosen your death grip and instead place your fingers in the holes in his hands and his feet and the wound in his side. All of these born for you. All these born to save you from your sin and save you from your just condemnation. Will you trust him? Are you trusting him? I pray that you will and I pray that you are. Let's pray. Our Father, we do confess our great sin. We do confess our daily and regular self-promotion, self-worship, our daily and regular death grip on our things, our desire for more and more and more and more things, rather than more things just so that we might to be, be able to be generous with them. Father, we recognize our place right alongside the scribes, but we also recognize your great love, your great mercy, your great forgiveness in what you have accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We pray that we would trust in the cross, Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection all the more so that we might become a people who might put in everything that we have. We pray all these things for your glory and our good. In the name of Christ, amen.